All right. Well, if you're uh, new with us, we're working our way through uh, 2 Corinthians. And so I invite you to join me there in chapter 3 uh, this morning. I want to pray for the Lord's help as we dive in together. <clears throat> Father, we pray you would come now and attend to your word. Come and do what only you can do. Give life to the dead. Come by your spirit, by your word, heal the wounded. Come today and empower and embolden the timid. Humble the arrogant. Grant grace to the humble. Come and have your way in our hearts, we pray. Make us more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of coming out of a church service in Scotland on one occasion when he noticed what he called an ordinary middle-aged lady. And he kept saying something along the lines of, there was nothing particularly striking about her. She was, uh, she was dressed in ordinary clothes and had a modest appearance. And as he watched this ordinary lady uh, make her way to uh, the parking lot, he watched as she was met by a chauffeur who had classic chauffeur uh, apparel on, very striking gentleman who gently opened the door for her and they drove away. And he later learned that this ordinary looking lady was actually a multi, multi millionaire. Rather unimpressive on the outside, but a very, very influential, powerful person. And I'm sure some of you have had a a similar experience before, how you may have bumped into somebody who's famous and uh, they may or may not have been striking. Oftentimes, uh, if they're dressed in ordinary clothes, you don't think anything uh, really about them. You can normally pick out the basketball players uh, when they get on the airplane. Uh, And I was on an airplane one time with the nature boy, Ric Flair. And uh, his appearance is very, very noticeable. Um, But I've been on planes and in in spaces where uh, politicians or actors or coaches uh, just uh, roll in and and you don't think anything about them. Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is trying to get the Corinthians to see him in his true light. They see his appearance as being too unimpressive. He's too ordinary. And his preaching they say, was not all that. That he had no reference letters, which was a really big deal. And Paul is defending his apostleship through this letter precisely because the gospel is at stake. You see, this this is a young church. It's a delicate situation. And if this church is led astray by what Paul calls these super apostles, then uh, that that would do great damage to this church. Those super apostles were very showy. They had domineering personalities. Their appearance was uh, quite different than the apostle Paul's. And what he's trying to do throughout the first part of this letter is to uh, get people to recognize that he is the real deal and that the gospel that he preached, even more importantly, is the real gospel. And as we look at this text today, we find some really important application for our own ministries, whether we're doing ministry uh, with our family or uh, in an official church position uh, or in your neighborhood or at your workplace. We see what it looks like to be a faithful and defective new covenant minister. The new covenant, that is the age in which we live, the Messiah has come. It's the age of the spirit where the spirit has been poured out upon us. 
And as we look through these six verses, I want us to, to note uh, really what Paul says about his ministry in three parts. First of all, he mentions his credentials. Secondly, he speaks of his confidence. And thirdly, he speaks of his calling. His credentials, verses 1 to 3. Paul begins by saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Now, Paul's very sensitive about commending himself, and he's reluctant to do so, but he has to address the criticism that's being made about him, again, because the gospel is at stake. And the people in Corinth were obsessed with credentials, mainly because of the presence of these super apostles. Paul mentions this issue of commendation several times in the letter, like chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward, outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So you get this argument here of the super apostles boasting about outer appearances, and Paul is having to address the criticism that's made about him, that he, he doesn't look very impressive. And then he asks uh, again in verse 1, the second question, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Recommendation letters. I don't know how many of those I have written in this context with so many students here. Uh, you know, uh, and I've read many reference letters. I must say that usually they're exaggerated, don't you think? <laughs> like everybody's a 10 on everything. Um, it's like the gods have come to live among us, one person said about these reference letters. <laughs> now, when Paul's talking about reference letters, this was actually very important. And you see Paul uh, doing this sort of thing throughout the New Testament. So when he sends Phoebe, for example, with the letter to the Romans, he, said, he commends Phoebe so that they will welcome her. Because you don't know if you can trust the traveling person or uh, trust their teaching. And so you, you needed kind of these, these reference letters uh, to warrant uh, a hearing. In fact, it, Apollos in Acts 18 arrived in Corinth with reference letters. But it was absurd to suggest that Paul, the founding apostle, needed reference letters. And yet they're saying he doesn't have any papers. And you can imagine the spin narrative they're putting on Paul. Well, you know, he wasn't one of the original 12. He doesn't look very impressive. A little bit more like George Costanza. You know, he, he, he's not a great speaker. Uh, I mean, and he doesn't have any papers. Who is this guy? Why are you trusting this, this wee little man who's getting beat up all over the Mediterranean world? And Paul says in verse 2, you yourselves are our recommendation letter. He says, I don't need references because you, Corinthians, are proof of my ministry. There weren't any Christians here until I showed up. There wasn't a church here until I came and started it. You want to see my credentials? What you ought to look at is my back, where I have been beaten and whipped. Look at my scars. He's going to uh, throw out all of these different uh, lists of afflictions that he has received. And so he's basically saying, my apostleship is verified by your transformation. Just look around at each other, he says. And you have all the reference letters you need. Now, the application for us is very simple, I think. Transformed lives are the best credentials you can have. What's Paul's credentials? Transformed lives. Listen, you may have a lot of degrees, but the question is, do you have any disciples? It's fine to have a degree. It's fine to have proper ordination and the papers. But are there any living letters 
That's the question. These credentials that Paul is speaking of are not seen on paper. They're seen in people. And the very existence of the church proved the authenticity of his ministry and the effectiveness of it. And what we should see about our ministries in order to have this kind of credibility is doing what Paul is doing here, namely first proclaiming the gospel, that's how the dead come to life, and by taking people into our hearts, which is where he goes next in verse 2, when he says that you are written on our hearts, known and read by all. Written on our hearts. This is a way of Paul saying that he loves the Corinthians. He has taken them into, our, into his heart. That's what you do in ministry as you pour out your heart, or you, 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 to say it another way, as you take people into your heart. And these are the two priorities of, of ministry, proclaiming the truth of God's word and taking people into our hearts. And Paul says, I've, I've taken you in, I've displayed pastoral love and care, and the fruit of this ministry, the fruit of the proclamation and the love, is that you are known and read by all which is another way of saying people can see that you have been changed by the gospel. And it wouldn't have been very hard to see in Corinth. After all, these people were, at, were, were, were quite a bunch. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That's the gospel. The gospel is such were some of you, but you're not anymore. You're new creations. And Paul says you're known and read by all. People can see the transformation that has happened to you. Now, this can sound a little bit like bragging. Again, it's a very sensitive thing to try to defend yourself. But Paul doesn't intend to be boasting here. In fact, verse 3, he clarifies that the source of their transformation is not from him, but Christ himself. He is the one who brings about this transformation. Notice what he says. What is it that the people see in you, Corinthians? He says, they see a letter from Christ delivered by us. That is, they see, if you're a Christian, an epistle of Christ. People are reading you. They're watching you. And the living Christ himself is the source of their transformation. Christ has written his name on their hearts. And if you're a Christian, he has written his name upon your heart. And how did this message come through? Paul says it was delivered by us. We're not the source of the message. We are the deliverers of the message. And it's a reminder for us in our ministries to stay centered on the word of Christ as he is the one who brings about transformation. And with what did Christ write this letter, verse 3? Notice he says, not with ink, but the spirit of the living God. That is to say, Paul's ministry was empowered by the spirit who brings about this transformation. Now, this is the first reference to the spirit that uh, and, and there will be a cascade of references in, in the following verses because Paul is going to elaborate more fully on the new covenant. Again, this age of the Spirit. And here he brings up the idea that God brings people to life by the Spirit. And that this message, Christ writ, wrote his name upon their hearts by the Spirit of the living God. Now, how many of you know when the Spirit of God writes Jesus' name on your heart, everything changes? 
The things of God, when this happens, are no longer boring. They're exhilarating. What was a burden now becomes a blessing. You don't have to read scripture, you get to. You don't have to worship, you get to. You don't have to pray, you get to. You don't have to sing, you get to. It's like telling me, Tony, you have to kiss your wife. No, I get to. And I'd like to do it a lot today because I'm going out of town tomorrow. But that's another sermon, all right? You get to do that. My boy Alex right here is getting married next week. And we're going to say, kiss the bride. And uh, he's not going to say, do I have to do that? I, I think you'll be ready to go on that one, don't you? Right. This is what happens when the Spirit of God writes Christ's name on our hearts. What we used to not like, not be interested in, the things of God now become everything to us. Now, in speaking to the Corinthians in this way, and by extension speaking to us, Paul is showing us where we stand in redemptive history. You know, business people often talk about location, location, location. Everything's about location. Well, it's the same chronologically. Location. We are in this age of the Spirit. The Messiah has come. Jesus has fulfilled the promises. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. And the Old Testament anticipated this new covenant day when God would write His law on our hearts. Where He would give us a new heart, put His Spirit within us, and empower us for obedience. God himself has done this. Paul declared what God had fulfilled and the church was now experiencing. This is the age in which we live. I know it's very commonplace to be complaining about the day in which we live right now <laughs> during this pandemic and during all the craziness that has come along with it. I saw a meme from the comedian Chris Farley a couple days ago that says, I'm getting pretty tired of living through these historical events. And he was like, all oh, back, you know, his hair was up in the air. But think about it. Even though you may feel like this is the worst of times, speaking chronologically within the flow of redemptive history, my friends, this is the best of times. We get to live in this age, this new covenant age. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to see this about Christianity. It's not about external conformity to religious rules or rituals. It's about the internal transformation that the Spirit does in our lives. And this is what we hold out to the world church. You can be transformed through the gospel by the Spirit. Number two, we see not only Paul's credentials being transformed lives, but we see Paul's confidence being in God's sufficiency, his confidence. Notice he says in verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim any of this coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This first word, confidence, uh, in the letter appears four of its six times in 2 Corinthians. Paul's going to speak on this subject a fair bit. And he highlights that the source of confidence for ministry isn't, doesn't emanate from ourselves. It comes from God. Pastor Shane talked about last week, chapter 2, verse 16, right, about um, the, the question, who is sufficient for these things? And now Paul answers it plainly, that our sufficiency, our ability, our confidence is from God. And it's tied to the fact that we are united to Christ. You notice the, the phrase that's so important, through Christ, everything we do in the Christian life, through Christ. 
because we are wedded to Christ, we are united to Christ, we experience God's sufficiency to do ministry. So my friends, if you ever have feelings of inadequacy in ministry, know that that's not a bad thing. That's, that's actually proper and right. That's not wrong. Ministry is demanding, often thankless, whether you're ministering to your kids at home or whether you're ministering from a podium. What is encouraging is that our strength, our confidence, our sufficiency is not from us. It's from God. And throughout Scripture, we see God being the source of individuals' confidence. Take Moses early on in the Bible. God calls this old man to declare war on Pharaoh. And Moses says, what is your name exactly? And God says, will you tell them I am who I am sent you? Moses like, I did. Uh, <laughs> tell them the one who is self-sufficient sent you. The one who is self-existent sent you. The one who needs no food and no air and no sleep. He is the one who sent you. He wanted Moses to know right from the beginning, Moses, the most important thing about your ministry is me. That I am your sufficiency. And here goes this old guy with the staff. That's all he's got. <laughs> It'd be like a, you know, a, an old Canadian plumber declaring war on America. Parting the sea with a plunger. Like there is no, this makes no sense that you're going to go up to the most powerful person in the world and he's going to let all the people go. And Paul is drawing on that kind of reality to say there's nothing special about us. Our sufficiency is from God. It's not our strength. My friend Adam Ramsey says, God doesn't want your strength. He never did. He wants to give you his strength. That's how we operate when it comes to life and ministry as a Christian. Through Christ, we're strengthened by God to do this work. We're not sufficient in ourselves, he says. He has a, he's a, he has a biblical estimation of himself. That is to say, left to his own ability and resources, even the mighty apostle Paul falls short. So a sign that you're qualified for a new covenant ministry is that you know you're inadequate. But you know God is not. He's fully adequate. Martin Luther quipped one time, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. We are not sufficient, but he is. Christ in us doing new covenant ministry. It's very easy in these days to feel overwhelmed. Very easy to feel like you have the not enoughness. Right? You, you can't do it. You need grace. You need power. And our sufficiency comes from God. This is a gift to be received, to be embodied, to be rejoiced in. Dane Ortland asks a practical question. What does it look like to move through life aloof to this truth? That is thinking you're sufficient. <clears throat> it looks like this. He says, frantic, anxious, overworked, judgmental, burned, insecure, easily threatened, easily hurt. But what does it look like, he asked, to move through life in sync with our sufficiency is from God? Calm, relaxed, encouraging of others, cheerful, impervious to criticism, all with childlike wondering at the full and free mercy of God and his remarkable condescension to sinners such as us. And ultimately, only this kind of life will prove to be spiritually fruitful, for it will be living and serving out of the deep resources of the Spirit of God. 
not the impotence of a heart attempting to satisfy the demands of the letter on its own steam. This is what it looks like to move through life recognizing our inability, but recognizing God's ability. We, we work from our weakness and lean into his strength and by his power, we do this work. That's his confidence and that's our confidence. Now, thirdly, we move from his credentials and his confidence to his calling. Verse six, and his calling is quite simply to new covenant ministry. Verse six, who has made us sufficient ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Translating this woodenly, it's God sufficiented us. He, he made us ministers. He strengthened us, called us, equipped us to be ministers of this new covenant, to be heralds. This is what we are, heralds of the long-awaited days in which the Messiah would come and fulfill the promises, the day in which Christ would come and be the yes to all of those glorious predictions and anticipations. Paul's already stated that. And one day Christ will come and bring to completion what has already been inaugurated at his first coming. This phrase new covenant only appears one other time, interestingly, in Paul's writings. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's writing about the Lord's Supper. Paul says that he received this cup is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Like the writer to the Hebrews, he saw the death of Christ as that which established the new covenant. But what he emphasizes here actually is not that event, though he, he, he will get there, but he emphasizes the work of the Spirit in the New Covenant age. New Covenant ministry, he says, is not of the letter, but it's of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. In other words, the Spirit is the sign that the new creation has dawned. He's here. The letter stands for the Old Covenant, that is the ministry of Moses. And when he says it kills, he means it kills when it's used inappropriately. That is, if you use it as a set of rules to follow in order to earn righteousness, that will kill you. No one can keep the demands of the law. What a, what a contrast with the Spirit. Whereas the law crushes us, the Spirit gives life to us. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and was crushed on behalf of us, instead of us, in place of us, rose from the dead, the Spirit has been poured out now, and the Spirit gives life to us. Not only have we been forgiven by Christ, but we're now motivated and empowered by the Spirit to do that which we could never do before. And that's freedom. Amen. That is joy. That's life. And that's what we offer the world. This is what we've experienced in Christ. The letter can only kill us because left to ourselves, we don't measure up. It leads to condemnation. It bounces off of hardened hearts, but the Spirit makes dead people come to life. And it's this ancient hope and this ancient promise that the cantankerous Corinthians were experiencing. They were experiencing new covenant life. And so were Christians around the world in church today, wherever they're meeting. We are part of an international community of brothers and sisters for some 2,000 years who've been experiencing the regenerating life of the Holy Spirit, who's come to make the dead alive. 
So we don't hold out to the world. Be a nicer person. Be, turn over a new leaf. We offer the world. Be a new person. Come and have life in Christ. Now, if you're watching this or you're here and you don't know if you have spiritual life, this, what I'm talking about sounds foreign to you. I'm glad you're listening and you may wonder, what do I do? Well, I was having a chat this week with a gentleman from Maryland and he was telling me about his 78-year-old dad. He says, my dad was a, or, and is a good man. He was a good father, but I, I don't think he's a Christian yet. And he, so he said, I got in my car a couple weeks ago and I drove to Pennsylvania and I just had one question for my dad. If you were to die, dad, do you know where you would, where you would go? And he began to talk about what Christians believe, but not as something he himself had appropriated and embraced. And so he says, dad, you need to start reading your Bible. This is my advice I would give you. If you don't know if you have life, because it's the word of God who brings people to life. Right. And so he says, dad, he said, dad, you need to stop watching the news and start reading your Bible. And he says, you know what? My dad started doing that. He started texting me. Hey, I read Ephesians. Hey, I read second Samuel. And he says, God's at work in his life. And that's what I would tell you too. Listen, it's very dangerous to come to a church service week after week, but not have spiritual life because you can deceive yourself. Coming here, or if we're indoors, going indoors, you know, as a friend of mine says, sticking your head in the oven doesn't make you a biscuit, right? You, you can attend things. You can be at places, but not actually have life. And so I just would pray that you would consider that, that it may not be the news for you. It may be Netflix. It may be the internet. I don't know. But what I know is God wants to do this in your heart. Paul's theology here of the Spirit's really remarkable. We'll unpack it in weeks to come. But think about this church. I'm going to land the plane here. There are three stages of the life-giving Spirit of God at work in us in our salvation. First, initially, what we call regeneration. That's what I've just spoken of, being born anew, as Peter talks about. Or Titus calls it the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The second stage is what we often call in theology sanctification. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in us right now. This ongoing work of making us more and more like Christ. And then thirdly, there is final resurrection or glorification in which the Spirit of God will raise us to life and give us new bodies. Paul says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That little phrase, will also, is so vintage, Paul. It's so beautiful. Just as the spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, we who are united to Christ will be raised with a resurrection body by the same spirit. From start to finish, the Christian life is a spirit-driven life. So today there are many things that we could ponder. There are many things that we could give thanks to God for, but where this text lands us today is giving thanks to God because the Spirit of God has given us life. And what He's done now assures us of what He will do in the future when He will raise these lowly bodies to, to have a glorious body in a, in a new creation.
Praise be to God for his word. Father, we thank you today for your grace in our lives. We pray that you would allow us to lean into your strength day by day, that our sufficiency, our confidence would be in you and from you, that you would give us this kind of ministry, that we would, as we proclaim the gospel, behold, transform lives. We give you thanks that we have life today. What was once boring is now exhilarating to us because of what you've done, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.